Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of the About IBD podcast. I'm your host, Amber Tresca. I'm the inflammatory bowel disease expert at verywell.com. You can find me on most social media channels as About IBD. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 1989, and I had J-pouch surgery in 1999. My guest today is none other than my own husband, Michael Tresca. We uncovered Mike's journal of the first step of my two-step J-pouch surgery. I decided it might be interesting to read it out loud to him and get his reactions on what happened during that time. He actually wanted to read it beforehand. I didn't let him read it. So it has been some time, obviously since he wrote it in 1999, and then since he's looked at it. It was fun to get his off-the-cuff reactions to his own writing about what happened during that first hospital stay for my J-pouch surgery. This was before I began my writing career in digestive disease, and there were a lot of things that we didn't know that definitely comes through in our recollections and how we dealt with the situations that came up. Even though we did go through some challenging times, everything turned out very well, and my J-pouch has served me with exceptional consistency over the past 19 years. All right, so let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Michael Tresca, my husband, who at the time of my surgery was my fiance. All right, Mike, I have your, I have your notes here. You have such great handwriting. Do I? Someone told me I have the handwriting of a serial killer. No, I don't think that's true. You, what, what would constitute the handwriting of a serial killer? I don't know. I, I guess it's because it's large letters and I try to make it legible. So maybe for, uh, for a man writing, I don't know, but that's what I've been told in school once somebody said that. But. Oh, fun. I hope it was a teacher. Yeah. So, um, no, your handwriting is readable, which is what I like because my handwriting is not. Thank you. To other people. So I can look at this and I can read it without any difficulty at all. I hope. I mean, I read this uh, maybe a few weeks ago. I read it through. But, you know, obviously I don't have perfect recall of it. So. Well, you have more recall than I do. <laughs> I know. Since you. Well, you came across that. Did you read it when you came across I it? I did. But that was a while it ago. It was a little while ago. And I tucked it away in my folder of things to deal with it's kind of a metaphor actually isn't it mm -hmm. um and i thought let's let's go through this and see what we have so it is march 2nd 1999 i love how you dated it also because that's really important now this is something that you know i don't think you think about in the moment but afterwards it's pretty cool that you have it dated because i did not necessarily record dates down. It's going to be in my medical history, and I could go and look it up on the very poor photocopies that I have. When I did it, uh, I, I'm trying to remember what I, what I was thinking. I think we had talked about doing this. I feel like we had a discussion about it where we said, oh, you should write it down, or, or I was going to say, or do this kind of journaling. But I don't know what the reason was like that started us down that path. It was probably because I had a physician years prior that told me that I should be recording things and that I should be um, thinking about writing it all down in a book. And at that time, it seemed very daunting. Writing a book? What do you mean write a book? And But obviously, the 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 day of my surgery, I was not going to be capable of writing things so you did it <laughs> all right so it's your fault okay <laughs> march 2nd 1999 8 30 a.m we arrive at the hospital surprisingly the hospital staff quickly processes amber through paperwork and signatures with a ready smile and knowing patience i am heartened by the experience and amber is too 9 30 a.m already we're an hour later so that's probably worn off yeah let's see Okay, the first nurse is courteous and caring. In fact, 
They're positively congenial. A comical war over the nature of the radio station being played plays out between the nurses, much to our amusement. Little color there. How enjoyable. Although our nurse ends up losing the battle for music that's not so, quote, old, it keeps our mind off perhaps the most difficult part to come. The long wait. This is all in capitals. <laughs> Amber remains calm, but tense. I think that's kind of my normal personality. <laughs> I, would, I would agree with that. <laughs> calm, but tense. <laughs> 10 o'clock a.m. So now we've been there for an hour and a half. Everyone with IBD knows this experience, but 10 o'clock a.m. Our cheerful nurse gives way to another nurse who is mistress, it is claimed, of inserting IVs. <laughs> I've heard that before. Um, okay. After a brief discussion over which arm to use, the left wins out because Amber is right-handed. Muttering about pressure page to perform her first attempt a painful one from amber's wince is a failure this is not surprising no one ever makes it the first time with me <laughs> amber wisely looks away on the second try i'm too filled with overprotectiveness to do the same this time she finds the vein but a disturbing amount of blood smears her arm the nurse does a poor job of cleaning it up but the IV is in, and that's all that matters. So we have to stop here at this point because this is the image that stuck with me the most of the entire process. Because obviously I'm not in the room with surgery. I'm not, you know, maybe the image after you came out. But her crazy fail on actually drawing the blood because it spurted. It didn't dribble. And I've never seen that kind of issue with blood drawn before. Um, that stuck with me of all the things I remember. That's the, I remember that the most. I'm trying to picture it because I wasn't looking. I typically don't look for IVs and for blood draws. I don't know why I don't have a problem with it. Um, I typically just don't look, I guess, because if they start digging, it almost seems to be better to not be looking at it. Like it can, I can almost, um, sort of, uh, and on a, you know, on a pain scale, that's not really such a big deal. But if I can't see it, I can think away the pain mm -hmm. easier. And I don't know how painful it was. Um, I, you know, we mentioned that you winced the first time, but the, the, I've never seen blood spurt during trying to draw blood. I've seen like, and certainly I've given blood enough that I've seen how it goes I've never seen blood spurt like that. That was that was like a, you know, horror movie kind of spurting. Yeah, I don't. I've never seen that. Um, I think I remember that IV though because I remember there being a lot of blood under the bandage, mm -hmm. and being like, you know, that's not really very typical. Usually they try to clean you up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know what that was about in particular, but. Only two tries, that's not bad. <laughs> no, it's not. Especially when I, for some reason, I thought it was a lot of tries as I remember it. That wasn't the issue. It was really just that second time, just a weird, spectacular fail, but she got it. So Right, right. And I was pretty sick. So two tries, it's, that's not bad. No. I don't have a problem. Usually when I go to the hospital, I just ask them for the, the central line right away. Um, I guess maybe I was just going to let them give that a try and see how it went. I think I probably thought I'd end up with a central line anyway, but... Um, it worked out. I must have drank my water. <laughs> okay, so 10.30 a.m. Another nurse arrives. Obviously a med student. Well, she a nurse or a med student. And she cheerily asks questions the other nurses have already asked. Do you smoke? Do you drink? When Amber retreats to the bathroom, <laughs> the assistant asks me if Amber does drugs. Not that I know of anyway. She laughs. I don't. Even my own brand of relentlessly stupid humor is beginning to fray. I think I would rather they ask too many questions than too few. 
Now, I'm remembering because every time I've had surgery or anything in the hospital, yes, they ask you the same questions over and over again, and there's good reasons for that, but it does get to be very annoying, and it was probably the first time that you had ever gone through that. Yeah, well, and, and as a layperson, so to speak, I think you um, you think they don't have their act together, and right. they're, re- they, they're not talking to each other, and they're asking the same question because they, they're supposed to. And like you said, these, this is actually redundancy protocols. There's a reason for that. But instead, if you're new to this, it comes across as the nurses aren't communicating. And therefore, they're asking the same questions over and over. Right. And also, some of them are um, your, uh, part of your surgical team or part of the uh, anesthesiology team. So, you know, there's several different, like, teams that come together and they all have their own questions and their own protocol and all of this. And so it's good. But when you're sitting there waiting to have surgery or waiting for your loved one to have surgery, answering all those questions does get to be annoying. 11 o'clock AM. By now, the long wait has segued into the grand eternity. The doctor hasn't arrived yet, but the hospital room is a bustle of activity. I could almost hear someone shout, the doctors are coming, the doctors are coming. And then one sticks her head beyond the curtain. A petite woman, she puts on an unconvincing smile. Uh Uh-oh, I think. You have two brothers who have colitis? The answer is one, not two. We already answered that question. My opinion at the cheerful nurses drops considerably. So you have colitis, she says, seemingly to herself. Then she does something unbecoming of a doctor. She implies Amber's condition may be something else other than colitis. If you asked me to pronounce it, it'd start with multi or poly and have the word polyp in it. It didn't matter. This was a doctor verifying every patient's last minute terrifying fears. Maybe you don't need surgery. What I think probably happened was she was discussing the fact that, uh, yes, I was having the surgery because of ulcerative colitis, but it was because I, my colon, uh, they found dysplasia in the biopsies that, that they had taken a few months prior, and I had pseudopolyps, mm-hmm. which are just what they sound like. They're polyps that aren't really polyps. They're polyps that happen to people with IBD, but they're not uh, the same kind of polyps that uh, people are more common in people after over the age of 50 and that you have taken out because they're going to become cancerous. So she probably said something like that, but those were not words that we knew at that time. Well, and and it's interesting because I'm always curious if I change a lot over the years, right? So this is, how many years is this? Since it's 1999, 19. right? So it's 19 years. 19 years. So, but my mindset is, I can see it very similarly, right? Which is, I already mentioned how I'm taking their repeated questions to be that they're not working together. And that put me on the defensive because now she's asking questions and it's some of it's tone, some of it's how it's conveyed. Some of it is how it's said to me versus how it's said into the air. Um, and I was I was looking for what I would consider um, uniformity and confidence from what they were saying, and I was not getting that. And because I wasn't getting it progressively from first the nurses and then the doctor, and there was a little bit maybe of internal monologue. I don't know what was happening. I interpreted that negatively. Right, and the other thing is is that the the people that we were dealing with up until this point had never seen me before that day. They may have uh, seen my case report, something like that, but they weren't my physicians. Mm -hmm. They weren't the ones that diagnosed me and went over what was going to happen and so on and so forth. So they were, you know, all new, we were all new to each other at that point. Yeah, and selfishly, I didn't, I don't care. Um, my concern was that they provide a united front in making you feel comfortable going into surgery. And I didn't feel like I was getting that. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, not anything overt. It was more subtle discrepancies that I was concerned you'd pick up on because I did. So. Right. All right. It goes on. The good doctor arrives. I like him immediately. He has a kind face, a soft voice, and I can see him process my questions and answer them. The nurses have dropped hints that he's also a very precise, fussy man. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps concerning qualities in a boss, but excellent qualities in a doctor. He attempted to call Amber the night before, and he knows we were using the computer because the message on our voicemail (laughs) clicked on immediately. All right. So we have to explain a couple of things. (laughs) This is a time warp. Yeah, because so the night before I would have been preparing for surgery. So I would have been prepping at that time. It was still drinking a gallon of liquid um, and going to the bathroom over and over. And then they also wanted me to take antibiotics. And I remember um, I started throwing up. So I called them and they were kind of like, that's all right. We'll give you more antibiotics during the surgery. So don't worry if you if you threw them all up, which I did. So that may have been why he was trying to call us. And the reason why he couldn't get through is because um, I think we did have a cell phone at that time. I think we actually got a cell phone somewhere around 97. But um, and I say we because not everybody had their own. We kind of had like a communal <laughs> cell phone. Um And I don't know why, like, we didn't give out that number or whatever. But anyway, but he called, and because it was dial-up, we didn't even have DSL at that time, wasn't even available. He called and went right to voicemail because we were on the internet because we were always on the internet. Still. And I'm trying to remember because you hadn't even been with me to an appointment that you had met my surgeon. I thought I had, but that's the way I'm past me is writing that it's yeah. as if I, I i may be doing that just for posterity because okay. i'm pretty sure i spoke to him okay beforehand i would have but. thought that you would have come with me to an, an appointment i don't remember you coming with me but you know why wouldn't we have done that oh and then this is funny your last comment here i restrained myself from hugging him <laughs> yeah well and and you know again putting this in context we've now had a couple nurses miscellaneous doctor who i'm not familiar with who i guess i don't know where she was in the in the context of of the team uh and none of them are giving me the confidence of what i was expecting doctor who obviously knows you and and knows what you know he's doing clearly but conveys that by his demeanor and and the exchange of questions and answers to me that is important so i thought that that came across i guess is the point Okay, so now we get to a little part here, sort of a foreshadowing of what's going <laughs> to oh. what's to come. All right. A third doctor enters the room, and you put room in quotes because obviously it's a curtained um, cubicle. Mm-hmm. He's talking a lot about anesthesia. He jabbers on to himself, apparently, about lower torso anesthetics. Amber agrees to it. At this point, now surrounded by three doctors, she might have agreed to anything. As the other two hustle away, I ask the good doctor to translate. This would be my surgeon. I get an, oh, you noticed, look. He goes on to explain that they don't want to argue in front of Amber while she's awake. They prefer instead to quibble over her unconscious body. Then he explains that there's a disagreement over the, quote, pain management being used. But the good doctor assures me Amber will get all the fun drugs and she will repeat, will, I repeat, be unconscious during the surgery. (laughs) I would hope. Well, good. Amber has tears in her eyes as they wheel her away. And thus, the little beast called guilt begins to gnaw its way up my ankle. So this is the culmination of what I was trying to do because I felt like you were holding it together as best you could. Extremely stressed. I don't even remember you vomiting, but certainly it was a physically draining time. You may have been at work. 
when all yeah. the throwing up was happening. So you were, I mean, you were barely holding it together because, you know, obviously you were trying to go into this calm. And that was why I was so sensitive to how everybody acted. Um, and <laughs> that's also why I was like, this seems weird. I'm noticing something. It doesn't seem like agreement. Uh, and uh, it was pretty funny because he came clean. Uh, almost immediately when I was like, what's going on? Because it doesn't seem like everybody's in agreement. And and of course, and I, I one can only assume this probably happens all the time. But um, I was I'm a I'm an impartial observer a little bit, right? I'm not impartial, but I'm an observer who's not sort of in the hustle and bustle of the actual surgery itself. So I see things that may or may not have been uh, apparent. And, you know, the guilt part for me is I was concerned that you were concerned about that discussion. Reality was you probably just stressed about the whole thing. Um, but that's where I felt guilty about trying to keep that sort of calm right up to the surgery itself. Um, and we, we <laughs> I felt like we didn't succeed. Well, the biggest concern is, and this is because they make you sign papers and they don't make you you cannot sign them but you sign all these papers they tell you all the things that could happen up into and including death and but those things seem so remote and also some of them are manageable but the thing that's most concerning to me and i think to a lot of others is the pain management yep you know you're going to be open and they're going to do a lot and because i had two-step surgery that meant that the first surgery was a colectomy and a j pouch creation that is a lot to undergo at once and the pain is obviously going to be pretty severe so of course pain management was definitely on my mind i had not had any kind of surgery previous. I had had many procedures, but never a surgery. So it was all, you know, new to us. This is interesting because you've written 1130 p.m., but it is obviously 1130 a.m. That's... <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know what that means, but that's just interesting to me. Okay. Stress is getting to me. Go I know, right? 11, 1130 a.m. I make the appropriate phone calls to let everyone know the surgery is going to go later than expected. I leave a note with both mothers and tell them to leave a turn the page voicemail message on our other number since using the cell phone in the hospital is out of the question. I contact Amber's sister who is home and is also six months pregnant. I talked to her for a long time. 12 o'clock p.m. I enter the men's room, then quickly back out as I realize the walls, the floor, the ceiling are all pink. <laughs> I check the sign. No skirt. Looking left and right, I venture in carefully, then more boldly at the sight of a urinal. Am I so conditioned to believe pink equals female? I'm not the only one. A few times the door opens, but nobody enters. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> Obviously, I was not in that the men's room or even I would have been in a patient bathroom, not a. Yeah. That's funny. 1230 p.m. I check voicemail. I don't know why I do this as everyone's at work, but I do it anyway. Lunch was palatable, but noisy as I picked the corner seat and unbeknownst to me, the one situated next to the community phone. The stress is too much. I seek solace in the rating in the waiting room with the TV that doesn't work. Three o'clock p.m. So now you've been waiting. It's been three and a half hours. I buy Amber the purplest thing I can find. A goofy looking sheep thing called Baba. I decide its name is Stoma. <laughs> The gift shop is fortunately filled with all manner of purple Easter stuff, so my brief quest isn't too challenging. So much for finding a purple dragon. <laughs> I count my lucky stars that I even found a sheep that color. I, I do remember the sheep. 
I don't think we have it anymore. Um, but I do remember it was pretty friggin' goofy and very floppy. It wasn't like a compact stuffed animal. It was kind of like a splayed. <laughs> Stoma the floppy. Stoma. We didn't call it. We called it Baba, I think. That was his original name. Like that. We, I tried to. I didn't think you, you didn't want to name it Stoma. I think I wanted to name it Stoma. Well, it was a sheep. I mean. <laughs> well, it was the occasion. It wasn't the sheep. <laughs> Maybe I do still have it. I don't know. I don't think so, though. No, I don't think so. Um, I did keep it for a long time. I remember that. Probably gave it up when we had like actual children and they had 5,000 stuffed animals. Six o'clock PM. The scary part is over. The doctor sits down to chat with me about the surgery. And we do just that. He reminds me of Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> I like Jeff Goldblum. He explains that they are never really sure an intestinal condition is colitis until they get inside. I think what he probably meant was, uh, could it have actually been Crohn's disease? And if they had thought it was Crohn's disease at that time, they may not have made the pouch. Um, and that's true. You could wake up and it's a totally different situation than what you thought was happening going in. Okay. He took a look at the colon after the surgery and it was bad. The timing of the surgery was right it could have been Crohn's, but the fact that she had a consistent pattern of colitis over eight years provides stronger evidence for colitis. We chat about other stuff too. He's not distracted or in a rush. I thank him repeatedly, but he reminds me that this is just the beginning. I wait for Amber to awaken in recovery. You remember talking to him? No. I don't were, remember any of that. You were drained, probably, and yeah, it's funny because I don't even remember the Jeff Goldblum comment, which I would think I would remember. He does not. He did not remind me of Jeff Goldblum at all. <laughs> uh, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> um, but he was not only an excellent surgeon, but he's also a pretty amazing human being. So, yeah, and you, you again, you see me reference his. He's presence. He is present. He's paying attention. He's answering questions. And he's got, he's both listening to you as well as has things that he wants to make sure you, you listen from him. And I thought that was excellent. So that's why we like him so much. Right. Yeah. It was amazing. And that's why I chose him. Um, also, too, uh, I was, it was six hours later that he came and spoke to you mm -hmm. after wheeling me back. So. I think that was pretty much on par with what they told us. Maybe a little bit longer. 7 o'clock p.m. Amber looks pretty pale and her eyes itch from the pre-surgical ointment they put on them. She's okay enough to ask me how I'm handling things. <laughs> I'm coming across not too shabbily. <laughs> Which is silly since I wasn't the one going through surgery. <laughs> Eventually, duty calls. I must inform the collective parents. I get to Amber's room before she does and begin making phone calls. I remember recovery very well. We'll have to do another episode where we go through my recollection of things. Yeah, no, because it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I, yeah. I didn't write it down. I, I could, though. I could write it down. 7.30 p.m. Stress sets in as I am yelled at, ordered around, and otherwise given instructions. For once, and only once in my life, I grin and bear it. Once Amber arrives, she's able to make her own phone calls. That takes some of the heat off me. There's just one problem. The pain medication drip sits empty in a corner, disconnected. It takes me a while to notice it's there. Amber's pain increases. Now I switch to politely pester mode. I find myself looking for a nurse every 15 minutes. I'll be right back and I'll tell you as soon as I hear something means 20 plus minutes. Nobody knows how to work any of the technology. In fact, I knew how to operate it better than they did. Amber's tube, one of many, 
draining, excess fluid has stopped draining and the fluid sits in the tube. Is it supposed to be like that? I ask. The nurse goes to explain that yes, it is because she doesn't have any more fluid to drain. The less fluid, the slower the drain. Okay, she's the nurse. Can they get the PCA working? Let me check her papers. 20 minutes later, at my insistence, she actually checks the papers. 20 minutes after that, at my insistence, we find there is no dosage listed, which requires the signature of the anesthesiologist. 20 minutes after that, he arrives. My insistence means nothing. 20 minutes after that, they attempt to hook up the machine, but don't have the right tubing. An indeterminate amount of time later, let's say 20 minutes, the machine is working. This includes the 10 minute, how the hell does this work discussion with the nurses. Relieved and believing Amber is in good hands, I go home. I'd have to add up all the 20 minutes, but it was probably an hour, somewhere between an hour to two hours that they did not have my morphine pump hooked up. So this is a, this, I mean, this served me well when you were in the hospital later, and it also served me well when you, when you, when you had the babies, um, which is nurses hear a lot of complaints. And the night staff probably hears more complaints <laughs> than anybody else. So they get a lot of whiners, to put it candidly, where there are people who are very needy and very upset and often in pain. And the problem is they start to, it becomes difficult to determine who really needs attention, who doesn't based on just complaining, right? So the big thing that I discovered is I am able-bodied. I can get up and get in their faces. Um, So I started making it a point of not staying in the room, but staying by the nurse's station and not leaving until someone at least addressed me um, and we got some kind of reaction. Uh, the problem is there's a clock ticking, and that clock ticking is your pain management, which is another thing we learned uh, the hard way through this one, this experience, um, which is that you there is a there's a pace that pain has to be administered, and if you fall behind, you don't just catch up. You have to do it in a moderate way, and the way you do is you stay ahead of your pain, and. Um, this was the worst example of what happens when you don't stay ahead of your pain um, because there's lots of bureaucracy in pain management. And as we saw in that example, people had to sign papers. There were people who didn't actually understand how to use the device. Uh, there was a bunch of um, issues. So it was a really enlightening experience for me um, and being a patient advocate. And, and it also, I think, drove home how important patient advocacy is for the partner or the person. Um, because the other thing, candidly, is you are hopefully drugged up. So you don't necessarily know what to say or in a position to say how you're feeling. Um, so the, the other person who's able to do that really needs to step up. You can't be shy. You can't sort of stand in the room. You can't not want to bother people. You have to really be aggressive. So I, I found that was... That was very educational. And then, of course, we're going to get to the pump thing. I don't know if that's in there. So this is where your narrative ends. Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's more that we have to unearth probably out of a file cabinet in the basement. But what happened after that was that you went home. So it was probably at least after eight. It may have been after nine because they sent you out of there. And there was no discussion of, could you stay? Did they offer a cot? That was not a thing. Um, You were to leave and you left. They had my machine hooked up. Um, The dosage was probably still not correct. I had an epidural for the surgery. It affected me in such a way that I could not move my legs. So they would ask me to do things like move my legs and I could not. Um, I could not feel them, could not lift them. I laid awake all night. 
in pain. Asking repeatedly for the anesthesiologist on call to come up and see how I was. Now, I don't know what he was doing all night. I'm sure he was very busy. Um, he finally got to me sometime in the very early morning. Again, I just had surgery, laid awake all night. That's not how it should be. He did adjust it. Something was wrong. He did fix it. While he was fixing it, he mansplained to me about how I just had surgery and I was going to have some pain. That, yes, of course. But again, these aren't people that know you well. They don't know that I am not a complainer. I'm not an excitable person. Typically, after I've been in the hospital for a couple of days, the nurses get it that if I press my call button, some shiz is going down. Because I never press my call button. As soon as I'm able to walk, I'm walking around. I would literally go and get my own gowns. I'd get my own stuff. Like, they don't know you, though. So they don't understand. The reason why that I know that this was not how it should be managed was because not long after the anesthesiologist came in and decided to yell at me, thank you, 12 hours after having major surgery, uh, I saw my surgeon. He came through on his rounds and we discussed what happened. And he is extremely well respected and also feared (laughs) (laughs) by the nursing staff, um, which was great. Not long after that, the hospital administrator was in my room apologizing to me. So now I believe there was a discussion. And I, I, I don't know why I think I talked to him about this, because I thought there was a moment where I pointed out that the pump wasn't working. It, it wasn't working. But it was I, I not thought I right. po- pointed out. I don't know if that was actually true or not, if I did or, or if it was you or he no- just noticed it on his own. The anesthesiologist actually had to adjust something with the epidural in my back. Something was wrong. And, you know, I don't have recall. I doubt it was all documented in, in such a way that we would know. I do know that uh, people were written up, whatever that means. Um, you know, when you have an administrator, I've never seen a hospital administrator ever. At any- and some stuff went down when I was hospitalized in previous, you know, for previous ulcerative colitis flares. I never had an administrator come to my room and apologize to me. So, And you know what? And the thing was, too, is that when he came in and adjusted the epidural, it was better. You know, something was clearly wrong. I laid there all night in pain. I think the reason I wasn't allowed to stay is because we weren't married. Um, Even today, I know of people who, not being married, the staying was still allowed. So... It just may have been hospital policy. You know, things are different now. Uh, Hospitals try to be a lot more friendly Mm -hmm. um, to patients and make sure that you have what you need, this type of thing. Um, Also, it wasn't private room. There was another woman in the bed next to me um, snoring all night (laughs) because her pain was managed. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it was just... You know, it was different. It's different now than it was then. Yeah. So how do you feel going through your recollections of that time? <laughs> My inner monologue is very dramatic. <laughs> that's how I feel. So is your outer monologue. <laughs> yes, that's true. It's actually not all that different. It's just funnier to hear it out loud read by somebody else. Um, no, it's, uh, I think it's pretty accurate. I, I think, um, I, I think some of that I wrote in real time. I wrote it as it was like when I had time because I, I didn't no, have No, I'm sure you did. You did. You're just, you're sitting there doing nothing. Right. I'm sure you were just writing it all so down. So I got the opportunity to write it. Um, I think what's really interesting when you listen to it is who comes through looking good and who, who doesn't. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I personally want to say this. You know, I don't, I know nurses have a tough time and it is a very difficult job. 
Um, and we've had amazing nurses, but I, as, as I was saying, you know, and it was interesting with your surgeon specifically, because I felt like he is the team leader who pulls everybody together. And whenever he wasn't there, that's when there were challenges, right? Um, so I, that's what I think listening to it comes across, which was it's, it's a team. And when that team isn't gelling, which was the vibe I was getting, which I think personally led to some of these, these issues, things happen. And, you know, they, I think the, the worst part was that it went on for so long uh, that, you know, some of these things I think could have been corrected pretty quickly if we just had the right person at the right time look at stuff. And instead, again, middle of the night, same thing, you know, anesthesiologist treating everybody like, oh, they just complain because I imagine that's what they hear from lots of folks. So they're not addressing your needs as if they are genuine. And uh, that was that's something that I think came across for me. And I never forgot that lesson. I, I used it when you were in the hospital with the kids um, and the second surgery. But, you know, you learn. There's no way to comprehend your role as a patient advocate in the room until you've been through it. And, you know, for all I know, they probably said I could have stayed. And I just listened, you know, I didn't fight hard enough to stay. So, you know. I don't even remember that being a discussion. I mean, I was a pediatric patient in pediatrics and parents were not going to stay. You know, maybe if you were a little baby, but other than that, parents didn't stay. No parents that I can recall of all my time in pediatrics, no parent ever stayed with any uh, child that was hospitalized. Now, this was that was also different state, different hospital, but that wasn't even something I would have asked to have happen because it was not something that I thought was a thing. Yeah. Um, I've had amazing nurses. I've had nurses that held my hand, that stroked my hair, that made sure that I did not lose my mind when things were happening. The nurse that was on duty that night was incompetent. And I suffered as a result. Not only was she incompetent, she either didn't want to or didn't know how to escalate the situation and get it resolved because they should have had an anesthesiologist in the room long before it got to that point. There was also something wrong with the drain. I'm having trouble remembering what it was. The drain was also not working properly. The drain was a write-up. That was my understanding. Because the, let me tell you what I vaguely remember. It's not written down because I hinted at it when I said about the drain conversation right. with the nurse. And the right. reason I think I pointed that out is because it came up later. I mentioned it to the, to the surgeon the next day and he said, what are you talking about? There is no way that fluid was totally drained at that point in time. And I said, really? Well, that's what the nurse told me. Unbeknownst to me, that triggered, I believe, a bunch of stuff behind the scenes and that's when the administrator showed up. I don't remember when I had that discussion with the doctor, with the surgeon. I thought it was over the phone, but it might have been in person when I arrived the next day. I don't know. But I I am pretty clear on that that was the, the drain not working is what the nurse got written up for. And it was because he was like, that's not a thing. And, and the thing that really in, aggravated him was he said it wasn't like they said they weren't sure. They basically gave a completely incorrect answer, which was, oh, no, it just it's drained all the fluid. He said, there's no way that early after yeah. a surgery that the fluid is drained. So I remember that because he got visibly agitated and I was making a joke as, as I make jokes about everything. I, I was kind of making a joke about, Oh, you know, stupid me. Um, and he didn't think it was funny and I didn't understand how serious it was until afterward. Well, because here's the thing. Pain is one thing. It's just your pain. That's not going to kill you. Fluid not draining out. That's supposed to be draining out. That's bad. Yeah. And, and, and think about, he spent the previous day putting me back together. And then because someone didn't know how to use a, how to hook up a drain properly, that could all be ruined. And I could have ended up with an infection or some other complication. I mean, that would make me pretty friggin' mad. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the thing that came across and it, the drip being one thing, the the drain being the other, was I was concerned and surprised by how much 
how little the nurses were trained in the technology because it kept coming up. I don't know how to do this. It's beeping. I don't know what this does, you know, and that was a concern. And obviously it became a concern later uh, because that was a real thing. Like, how do you guys not know how to use this Well, it was equipment? just the one. It was just the one and I never saw her again. Um, I mean, I was there, I think, five days that time. I never saw her again. I'm willing to bet that my surgeon was like, yeah, she's not going to be taking care of my patient. He had that. He literally had that kind of pull. Um. So yeah, it was a chance. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave with a funny little story though that I don't know if I've ever told you this. When they were wheeling me back for surgery, and they wheel you into the uh, operating room, and it's funny because an operating room does not look like you expect it would. Like there's stuff everywhere, and you're like you like you expect it to be like this like clean room. Thing. At least I did. You know, and there's like all this equipment everywhere and just stuff. And um, it just didn't seem like what I expected. And so one of the um, one of the team and I don't know who at this point, they all have masks, masks on and stuff. So and having met most of them that day, I don't remember who it was or um, what their title was. Um, She leans over to me and she says, you know how tall he is? My surgeon is very tall. And I says, yeah, she says. The scrubs don't fit him properly. I said, oh, really? She says, yeah. She says, so listen, this is what we're going to do. When he comes in, you're going to see those scrubs are like way too short on him. There's like, it's like he's wearing floods. And we're all going to point and laugh when he walks in. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And for all I know, they did this, you know, like every time. But it's true. He's very tall. And he walked in. And I'm looking and yeah, you know, I mean, I think they had also given me like a little bit of anti-anxiety sure. at that point. I think, <laughs> I think I may have asked for, I don't think I asked for it. I think he was with it enough that he was like, just give it. Yeah. Um, But yeah, he walked in and we all chuckled at his scrubs <laughs> being far too short for him. <laughs> He is tall. I forgot. So he was always sitting when I. This is the Jeff Goldblum moment because Jeff Goldblum, I think, is tall. Maybe I'm. Yeah, not. I think he's pretty tall. And um, I think that was part of where. Now I'm remembering that was part of the the whole thing. But yeah, uh, it was rare that I saw him standing. He was usually sitting down. So when he stood, you're like, oh wow, he is tall. <laughs> or actually, I'm just not very tall, and he's tall. Uh, we invite uh, him to our wedding. We did invite him to our wedding. He couldn't make it, but he, no. he, was, he was awesome. Yeah. He is uh, he's awesome. He knows right. who he is. <laughs> yeah. He knows who he is. <laughs> Other, some people know who he is, um, but, I, you know, I try not to use names to protect the innocent. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wait a minute. You use my name. You're not innocent. <laughs> That's right. I'm guilty. <laughs> <laughs> you put it right in the thing. I read it. <laughs> you admitted it. Yeah, that's true. Good times. So uh, now I think it's time to have uh, a drink. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you mean more more drinks. <laughs> more drinks and decompress. <laughs> well, thanks for keeping some pretty detailed notes. Thanks, past me. <laughs> you were smart. If only you'd remember to take some pictures. Uh, what, my Instamatic? What do we have back then? I don't even know if we had a camera, no. honestly. I don't know this if is, we did. This is pre-camera phone. Um, but the other thing, too, is that they were very... I mean, and again, you know, if you were... Maybe nowadays I would push back being older slash wiser, but um, you, there was no, they were really against no phones, no cell phones. Oh yeah. And well, that's not a thing anymore. But yeah. it was. It yeah, was at, at the, the time. time, right? Yeah. So yeah, it was different. I remember we had this Nokia flip phone. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's purple. You had the Nokia flip phone. Yeah, I think I carried it most of the time. I had like a dragon phone. At later, mm-hmm. we only had the one phone at this time, yes, though. That's right. Yeah, it was like it's basically just because it like emergencies, right? You know, right? I don't. Obviously, like, my surgeon didn't even have the number. I think they didn't even think to ask for it at that time. Yeah. And I didn't think to turn it over. Right. It was kind of funny, actually. But 
All right. Let's have some rosé. And there you have it. That was a look inside our minds of those first two days after J-Pouch surgery. Obviously, the recovery from J-Pouch surgery takes several weeks, so there's far more story to tell, although the rest of it is probably a lot less dramatic. I did have a pretty uneventful recovery, which is, frankly, what you want. Special thanks to Mike for being my guest and for putting up with me, telling him to stop talking with his hands every few minutes. If you enjoyed this episode and you have not yet listened to episode eight, which is also with Mike, you might wanna do that. Don't forget, you can find me on all social media as about IBD. You can find me at verywell.com and you can also find me at my own blog, aboutibd.com. You can find Mike as World of Wellstar on Facebook and Twitter and Patreon. Thanks so much for listening. You're my super listener and I have such warm feelings for you. And remember, I want you to know more about IBD.